A one, two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you necessarily came from a silver spoon type background. Definitely not. My, my folks were immigrants, poor immigrants that were caught in the war, World War II. They were in Singapore at the time. My dad was an artist, an art student, and he came to New York to learn in the Art Student League. Um, and you know how artists make money. Yeah. They don't. Um, but he you know, took as a job as a draftsman with architecture firms. And my mother was a lab tech. And we were living in New York, which is a hard place to live, not making a lot of money. But no, no silver spoon in this mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, did you ever think that you'd go into real estate? Never. You know, I grew up in an era where Trump was kind of an icon, not for his views on politics or the way he carries himself, but really for his real estate empire that he built. So in a way, I really wanted to be a part of that. I never thought that I would do real estate as a job per se, it was really just a series of random events that led me to this path. This guy you're hearing from is Mark Choi, and the name of his company, Climb Real Estate, fits his story perfectly. Ever since he was a kid, Mark's gaze has been firmly fixed upwards, climbing the ladder of success. Just like Mark, I grew up in an urban environment. He grew up in New York. I grew up in San Francisco. He's a little older than me, probably remembers the Reagan years a bit more clearly. But both of us came of age during a time that was post-white flight and pre-gentrification. We both remember a working-class city, a rough-and-tumble place, especially the East Village, where his parents first moved. There was so much crime. Uh, my parents would tell me that they literally had their apartment broken into four times in the course of a year. Then we moved to Queens, Jamaica, Queens, uh, which was a very mostly working class immigrant background. It was like the United Nations. We had one Indian family that we were very close to right next door. We had several Hispanic families. We had another Chinese family there, and I'm Chinese by background. We had a lot of Caucasians, you know, native Caucasians, like grown up and raised in the U.S. We had a lot of Greek families in the neighborhood, and it was a very diverse upbringing. Where I live in Oakland, a lot of the conversation around gentrification is about people. Nameless, faceless, rich people coming in and stealing land from neighborhood natives sort of a modern-day colonialism. And there's no denying some truth in that. But on the other hand, there have always been young people moving into the city, including my parents and Mark's parents back in the day. But for a variety of reasons, urban real estate has probably never been in such high demand as it is today, at least within most people's lifetimes. And as with any booming industry, there are some winners and losers. Mark is clearly a winner. In less than a decade, Mark and his partners built their company from scratch to one of the top 10 real estate agencies in San Francisco. 
At the end of this episode, we will come full circle with an extended discussion between Mark and myself on gentrification. But for the next 20 minutes, please suspend your personal politics, whatever they may be, and enjoy this first-generation American's super success story. My name is Ruben Lee. Welcome to Working Sunday, the show about small businesses and the people who run them. So what drives this guy? Well, one thing's for sure. Since Mark was a kid, he's always been a moneymaker. So I was always been a small business guy. I would sell chocolates on the corner. I had a paper route. They started with one street and then it expanded. I took over other streets, two, three, four, and eventually I did an entire neighborhood by myself. One of my first jobs was literally selling fireworks to the kids in the neighborhood. I was so cool because I was able to get on a bus and navigate my way downtown and I knew where to buy fireworks. So I would go buy fireworks in Chinatown and go sell them to the kids in the area. And I would mark it up 100%. Mark was a good student. And in college, he majored in computer programming and data science with a specialization in artificial intelligence. In the 90s, he moved up the ranks of the corporate world eventually working for the chief technology officer of Citigroup. But even as he was enjoying a stable, successful Manhattan life, the corporate world was just too rigid for him. Uh, When you're at a big company like Citigroup, there's very few places to go. And you are really on a Titanic. Not to use the analogy that it's going to sink, but it was a huge ocean liner going in one direction whether you were in the cabin uh, on the second deck or whether you were on the, on the fifth floor or whether you are in the swimming pool, had very little bearing where that ship was going. It wasn't just being stuck on an ocean liner that bothered him. In a steady paycheck type situation, there just wasn't enough risk reward. So he began looking for extracurricular ways to bump up his wealth. Real estate was booming. I was putting condominium deposits down on buildings that were being built, trying my hand at it, and it was doing well. There was one condo in particular where he put a deposit down, actually hoping to later move in. But it turned out to be such a good investment, it changed the course of his life. It was a new development called the Gretsch Building. Gretsch is, to those in music, they're a drum manufacturer. So that was the factory where they were making drums and guitars. And some developer turned that factory into condos. But it was a really beautiful factory and it was at the edge of Williamsburg or at an edgy part of Williamsburg that we felt was in the path of progress because it was right off the subway line. And um, no one at the time was going to Williamsburg except the, the hip ones, the artists. And we always knew that you always follow artists to where they're going because what ends up happening is they create such a vibrant life that people who are not necessarily artistic really want to tap into. So they they end up moving to these areas and gentrifying, quote unquote, gentrifying the area. Around this time, Mark met his soon-to-be wife, Julie, and fell in love. They were sharing a 400-square-foot studio apartment in Manhattan in Chelsea, a block away from Madison Square Garden. And their plan at the time was to move to this bigger, hip new apartment they were buying in Williamsburg. But the building wasn't finished being built. 
We bought this condo for 300,000. We put 10% down and it wasn't gonna close for a year and a half. During that year and a half, the home went through 12 price increases. The home was worth over $600,000. And we were gonna move here to live. And at that time, I said, wow, I'm making much more money in real estate. Let me just quickly quantify that in case you missed it. Because Mark only put 10% down on the condo, that means he was only out of pocket 30,000 bucks in cash. So a year and a half later, when the property had doubled in value, that meant he made a $300,000 profit off of a $30,000 investment. Talk about leveling up. This was a hot market. but a cold city. During that time, uh, you know, the winters were brutal in New York. Record snow, every summer was brutal. Record heat, record humidity. And so we decided to move to San Francisco and that I was going to invest and build a fortune just like Trump did. <laughs> I hate to use Trump as an analogy, but you know, unfortunately back then this was the, you know, he was the guy in real estate that a lot of people looked up to. So the market was primed at this time for Mark. We are talking the early 2000s, when everything was on the rise again after the dot-com bust, and inner cities everywhere were being turned into the fanciest part of town. But it's not enough to be at the right place at the right time. You also got to have the dough. I started investing in places like Austin and Phoenix and Las Vegas. Kansas City, going all around the country, identifying opportunities, lining up capital. And when you say lining up capital, um, not just your own, you mean lining up yeah, a, a group know, of investors? Mm -hmm. or? Yeah, so the idea, the issue that you'll find in getting into real estate is, especially if you're going to make it um, a job and rely on it, is that it's very capital intensive. You need to have hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to lock up properties and own them for a period of time or cash flow with them for a period of time. And at that point, if you're putting only 20% down, you are not cash flowing, mm -hmm. right? You need to put down 40, 50% really to, to see some sort of dividend on that home month to month. And you know, you run out of money quickly. So I had to raise money. So I was raising money from individual investors, mm -hmm. Just really small time stuff, like a friend. Hey, I'm gonna go in on this. Do you wanna split it with me? And of course, in order to transact all of this real estate, he needed an agent. And the agent that he worked with, Chris Lim, the guy who had changed his life with a simple observation. Chris Lim said, hey, you know, you would make a good agent. You should be an agent. And I said, what? <laughs> My joke is, what? Be like a used car salesman like you, you know? Yeah. And I really, I didn't really think about that as an option. And he kind of planted it in my brain that, hey, why don't you get your license? So I thought, okay, why don't I get my license? Why don't I transact real estate, give it a go, and simultaneously have access to inventory that I could invest in. Yeah. So I was an individual agent selling real estate 
under a team concept with Chris Lim and several buyer agents between 06 and 10. I see. So you were climb real estate, but you were just a team. You weren't incorporated, right. essentially. We were not incorporated. Uh -huh. um, the owner of the brokerage that we were hanging our licenses under allowed us to brand and was really generous in uh, letting us do our own thing. They went independent in 2010. Mark, Chris, and a woman named Tiffany Combs co-founded Climb Real Estate as a separate company with about seven to 10 agents. And right out of the gate, they were killing it. San Francisco real estate was on fire. A whole generation of global employees were moving in, making big money and needing places to live. It seemed like every year there was a new neighborhood being created out of former industrial wastelands Neighborhoods with names like Dog Patch and South Beach. And chances were, if you walked through any of these hip new neighborhoods, you would see a climb real estate sign. Their specialty was condos, and new condos were being built on every corner. Every year, new agents were signing up to sell real estate underneath the super hot climb banner. And within six years, just six years by 2016, they had over a hundred agents working for them, doing close to a billion dollars in sales. Okay, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like funny money. So what does it mean to sell that much real estate? How much money was their company actually making? Well, as you may know, everyone in real estate gets paid on commission. When a house gets sold, agents get their cut, about 3% give or take. Then, out of the agent's cut, they kick down about 1% of the final sales price to their real estate agency, the brokerage. So when the agents working for Climb were selling a billion dollars worth of real estate, that meant Mark's company was earning about 1% of that, or about 10 million bucks per year, after all their agents were paid. That's some serious cash flow and a lot of responsibility. When you open a firm, you now have to be responsible for your employees' work towards that client, that same client. It's a very different thought process. And you need to take care of your employees and your clients now. And so that means you need to bring in more work, more jobs, and you need to keep your employees happy because if you don't, someone else is going to. So if you can't tell already, Mark's got kind of an iron shell, that New York toughness. So whatever difficulties were created during that period of hyper growth, he doesn't talk about it. So I'm not sure if folks who haven't been through it can really imagine. When your company is adding a dozen or more people per year, the culture is shifting all the time, sales are exploding, People are working long hours week after week. It can definitely bring out the best and worst in people. Was there anything that surprised you in that process? Yeah, you know, when you, when you start a company with a partner and the partner becomes a third partner, it is a marriage for better or for worse. You're gonna, you're committed and you're not gonna like a lot of things that your partners are doing or the way your partners are behaving. 
uh, very often and you're gonna clash and you're gonna have different opinions and different ways of doing things and you just gotta suck it up. And so you need to be accepting of all of their shortcomings because you can be in love with all of their positives the great things that make you want to work with them but what happens is you discover all of the shortcomings that come out after and you can't sort of back out of that and say oh i didn't know that he was like this or she was like that and so that was surprising how much of like a marriage it became and how much um my partners became like family in a sense which i really enjoyed but it was a surprise how difficult it can be to have partners. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from the outside, it seems like things are just going 100 miles an hour. Things are going great. Um, do you consider yourself successful now? Like, how do you define success, you know? You know, it's funny. Success is a, it, it's a loaded word and it depends who you're talking to, right? Let's say, God forbid, something happened today. God, I shouldn't even talk about this. Knock on wood, where's wood? Okay, here we go. I would say I had a very successful life. I have two kids, two boys, uh, my wife, uh, who I love very much. I'm living my dream of running a company, right? Could I be more successful in every area of my life? Of course, right? Like. Yeah, I could be richer, I could be happier, I could have a better place to live, I could have a second home, I could have a third home, I could be... And you're in this area of the country where the wealth is absolutely ridiculous. Coming from New York, uh, it's very similar. You know, New York has a very crazy history of super wealthy individuals making ungodly sums of money you know, and are very financially successful and very career successful. You know, it's, it's easy to look at the Joneses and, and always trying to keep up. And I'm not immune to this, mm -hmm. right? It's very easy to envy the guy that's flying in a private jet from here to Salt Lake City to go skiing in Deer Valley or wherever the hot places are. I think this fear of missing out, this FOMO fear uh, some people have and other people have in um, greater doses, uh, I have it in huge doses. So if there's some trend going on, if there's some thing that's exciting, I want to be a part of that too. Mm. So Mark and his team have kind of come full circle. Remember they started all those years ago as a small team inside a bigger company? Well, not too long ago, they engineered that process in reverse. In 2016, uh, National Brokerage uh, Realogy really took notice of us and decided to purchase us. It was a perfect fit for us because we always wanted to take climb to another level and we couldn't do it on our own. And so we needed a partner. Are you, are you happy about it? Yeah, I'm very happy. We're still very much involved. I am the CTO of Climb and um, we're doing exciting things. And, and now we have a lot of resources behind us to help us do these things. 
and fulfill our mission and vision, um, which is really to take climb national and, and reinvent real estate in our eyes, right? So um, very happy, very thrilled, super excited, come to work every day, jam-packed. You know, I have complete autonomy and independence to do what we think is right. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's the ultimate dream, right? That's the American dream to yeah. really not just start your business and own a house, but really ultimately to have the independence and the wherewithal to be able to do your own thing. Always climbing. That's Mark Choi, tech wizard and successful real estate entrepreneur. And if you're interested in his opinion on gentrification and affordable housing, stick around. After the credits, I'll play another clip of my conversation with Mark. Friends and family, much love. We'll see you next time here on Working Sunday. If you like the show, share the show. Like, let's say you have a friend who's trying to build a real estate empire. Share this show with them. They'll appreciate it. And remember, when you buy local, 50 cents of every dollar stays local. Support your local economy, y'all. It's so important. Music and mixing by William Mandel. Major editing support by David Fox. And produced by me, Ruben Lee. Recorded live at Climb Real Estate in San Francisco and right here in Oakland, California. Hey friends, thanks for listening. Before we get on to the bonus segment, I want to give a quick shout out to Angel Gonzalez over at Snappy Kraken. Snappy Kraken, like the sea monster, K-R-A-K-E-N, offers pre-built marketing campaigns and workflows for financial advisors. So basically, if you're in the financial services industry, you should get up on this. They help you generate leads. And hey, their name is Snappy Kraken. It's kind of fun, right? Not something you expect for the financial services industry. Anyways, big shout out to Angel and snappycracking.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. <clears throat> so uh, I wanted to like ask about gentrification a little bit because it's such a divisive topic, especially around this area. Yeah. And you touched on it a little bit that it's like, you know, the artists come and then I've heard lesbians say as well that they feel sometimes like the tip of the spear. But, you know, in a way, um, change is a part of life, right? And Mm -hmm. this place has been changed. If you look back 100 years, what was San Francisco? So, you know, it's hard to say that where someone is born, that they lay claim to that. Yep. Um, You know, and yet people feel the way they feel. How do you stand on it because yeah, you know, you're kind of right in the middle of the boiling pot. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, um, you know, gentrification is such a loaded term and, it, and it's, it's a relative term. One set of people fe- feel like they're improving the neighborhood for the better. But 
who's to say that the people that already live there are not happy? Now, granted, um, who doesn't want less crime? Who doesn't want less pollution? And I just think, you know, you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. You can't have mm-hmm. a area or a population of people that want to improve on their living situation and benefit from that improvement, but then don't expect change to happen. I mean, this city and this state, it's all about change. Yeah. And it's all about innovation and it's about progress. If you, di- if you just want it to stay the same and not change, then you shouldn't be living in San Francisco. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, do you think that affordable housing is like the local government, ha- is that it is their responsibility to ensure that there's economic diversity within the population? Um, or do you think that... Yeah. Go ahead. They overstep their boundaries. You know, it's, it's just such a, an interesting issue that I, I find myself on both sides of from time to time. Some people say that affordable housing keeps um, poor people poor because they are effectively buying an asset that doesn't really, that has a cap mm. on how much it appreciates. So you could also say that uh, affordable housing requirements only make the development of the housing more expensive mm-hmm. because they can't charge full market rate on the home. For a long time, I was always on the side of, look, you need to build more. Mm. It's a supply and demand. If you have 10 homes for sale in an area where there are a thousand people trying to buy that home. I'm sorry, but those 10 homes are gonna be very expensive. Mm-hmm. I think, however, as my, my thoughts have evolved over this affordable housing issue, you just can't wait for thousands and thousands of condos to be built to drop the price. Yeah. And ultimately, you need to somehow consider a, an entire swath of people who can't afford to buy. Mm-hmm. And you need to figure out where to put them, and you need to figure you need to give them opportunities to participate um, in some way. Otherwise, if you just let this be a free market proposition, you're just going to have developers building hundreds of condos everywhere, and the, the disruption will be massive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think a lot of these, and I'm speaking for them, but a lot of the affordable housing people. They want growth and they want supply, but at a manageable level. Mm. And they don't want it to be, okay, just provide enough supply to meet demand and prices will drop. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you keep, uh, you know, build more supply than demand and prices will drop. Because ultimately, where is that supply all gonna go? San Francisco is a tiny, tiny city, mm. seven by seven. It's super tiny. Where are you gonna put all these people? And, um, you know, how are you going to support the infrastructure? How are you going to move people around on these tiny roads and uh, a subway system that is really at max capacity at this point, mm-hmm. um, especially given all the problems of construction and seismic concerns and um, growth concerns? I mean, it is a big, hot mess yeah. that is not easily solvable um, today, and it's, it's obviously a huge problem. Yeah, it's nice to be in a private company and not be in public policy. Yeah, 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 exactly. A big, hot mess. 
Couldn't have said it any better myself. Thank you, Mark, for sharing your story with us. Hey, by the way, if you're interested in listening to one of the best rundowns on gentrification that I've ever heard, you should check out this other local podcast called East Bay Yesterday. The episode is called Get to Know Us First. It features stories, kind of like this show. But these interviews are with some super lively and entertaining longtime Oakland residents. It's completely unpolitical, but man, what a great insight into how real people from the black community who've lived here a long time actually feel. One woman mentions that her parents moved here in the early 1940s when Oakland was only 3% black. So they've seen all the changes. You can search East Bay Yesterday in your podcast app, East Bay Yesterday. Or if you want to keep listening to this show and you're feeling the real estate topic, go back and check out episode 10, where we interviewed Trang Dunlap, one of the Bay Area's top producers. She tells us how to flip a house and gives us the nuts and bolts of building a successful career as an agent. And finally, come back soon. Our next project, dropping early October, will be a five-show series highlighting the low lows and the spectacular dream-fulfilling highs of becoming a real-life working artist in Los Angeles. We are heavy on the grind on this production right now, curating over 10 interviews with some heavy hitters in the art world, including Anne Shen, a nationally published author, a King graffiti artist named Mir, and another guy named Ben Goretzky, who started one of the biggest art conventions in Southern California. This is our show's first foray into a multi-character industry deep dive. I'm super excited about it. So make sure to check back in with us for that. All right, I think that's it. Peace, y'all.